Hello and welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and today, oh, it's a cracker. I'm chatting to Miriam Margulies. We only have one life. That's the terrible truth. I don't believe in reincarnation. I want people to love life and love lust and sex, but I want them to take life seriously as well. I'm here and now, and I must make it work and do the best I can. I think it'd be entirely fair to say Miriam is a national treasure. She's played Professor Sprout in Harry Potter, Mother Mildred in Call the Midwife, and one of my favourites, the nanny in Romeo and Juliet. Juliet! Ah, it's the best, the best! But she's also adored for her no-holds-barred frank opinions and beliefs. And their sentiments that have formed through the numerous and varied life experiences she's now written about in her completely riotous memoir, which is the most fun book to read, at the age of 80. I think you're all in for a real treat today, guys. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Now, just a little note. There's some deliciously explicit, fruity language in this chat. You would expect nothing less. So now might be the time to pop on your headphones, especially if you're around kids, if you haven't already. Right, strap in, gang. Here's the show. Miriam, what an honour to have you on my podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's lovely of you to want to have me, so I'm very glad to be with you and I hope that I'm technically proficient at all this because nowadays you have to have a degree in engineering before you can open your mouth. I know. It's outrageous. I've struggled myself over the last year and a half, but we, we've we've worked it out and we pushed through and we're still managing to make the podcast, which is, um, for me, great because I absolutely love doing it and I love I love just every week getting to chat to someone different about life and and the wonderful thing today is you know you've you've written about pretty much your whole life in this brilliant new book which I've got an early copy of I was very lucky to get a sneaky copy well that's more than I've got (laughs) (laughs) no way I haven't did you I first of all and I'm only interested in praise not criticism um what's it like is did you enjoy reading it or what was your feeling I loved it. I, Miriam, I loved your book so much. Not only is it funny and beyond exciting to read, it is packed with stories. It's a love letter to your friends. I, I just thought it was beautiful and I adored it. So I'm, I feel very lucky to have had an early copy. It's brilliant. I mean, a lot of people these days write an autobiography way too early and you get, you know, like 30 years of an autobiography. You waited until the age of 80 to look back on your whole life how was that? Where do you even start with with trying to format that and work out the route that you want to take? Yes, it was not something I ever intended to do, quite honestly. And um, I think COVID helped because lockdown meant, what is a girl to do? <laughs> you know, and I was in Tuscany in my farmhouse that I share with 
my partner Heather and uh, and the chap we know, Peter, and um, there was nothing much else to do. And then I got an offer that I couldn't refuse from the publisher. So I thought, well, let's go, girl. And so <laughs> gradually I managed to get myself into the frame of mind that, that I could talk about myself. And um, so I have. So it, it, it's a very odd thing to do to, to tell the truth about yourself. And I knew that it had to be the truth. So that's why there's a lot of naughtiness in it, really, because um, I don't know how people are going to react, because it's not something that every grandmother is going to want to read, is it? <laughs> oh, it's so fun. It's the most fun book because of the naughtiness. And, and I must add, on this podcast, you can be as utterly naughty and sweary, whatever it is you like. We have zero rules here, so don't don't hold back at all. You say at the start of the book that part of this was to try and make sense of life. Do you think that you accomplished that? Do you, do you feel a sense of understanding of your life now you've, you've completed the book? I know a bit more about myself, I think, than I did. And I like myself. I've come out of it feeling that I am a, a decent person uh, because I know, obviously, that I've offended a lot of people in my life and people think I'm very rude and that sort of thing. But when I think about what I've done and that sort of thing, I feel, please, I don't feel smug because I know that I'm not complete yet. I've got a way to go still. But it is quite a, a salutary experience because you face yourself. And I have done that quite genuinely. So I'm, I'm relieved I've done it and I don't have to write another book. My, my, my lovely uh, editor, Georgina, said, you know, you must write another. I don't want to write another book ever. This is it, girls and boys. But I'm very pleased I've done it. I was sort of surprised at the start of the book when you were saying, you, know, you, you write this amazing list of all your accomplishments and, you know, in and outside of work, whether it's friendships, relationships, theatre, film, and all the fun that you've had. Uh, but you, you summarise it by saying you feel like you've only just sort of skimmed the surface of life and there's still a feeling that you're unsure about things. Have you accepted that, that maybe you'll never have that feeling of, I feel totally sure about life? I think it's true that you always feel insecure. I think everybody does. However famous and, and realised their career is, Everybody feels, I wish I'd done this. I hadn't done that well. I've got a long way to go. And I do feel insecure about myself. I'm always a little bit anxious. And I think acting and show business makes you like that because you're constantly putting yourself on the line and saying, pay money and look at me. Well, I mean, what a bloody cheeky thing to do. So <laughs> I, I will never feel that I offer value. I, and that's that worries me, I think. I don't want to shortchange people. And um, I've tried to be entertaining and so on and generous, which I, I believe I am. And, and everything I've got, I got from mummy and daddy because they gave me the confidence to do whatever I wanted to do. And I really feel for people whose parents don't give them that. I, do, I don't know what it must be like to have an unfeeling family background. I loved reading about your parents. It was really interesting reading about, especially your mother, who was obviously a very vivacious character who had a, a huge impact on your life and, and how you see the world. I think it's something that I 
I wonder about quite a lot how much of an impact our parents' actions and views and their parenting styles, how much of that ripples into your adult life, how much of that you carry around with you. And I wonder if you ever lose that influence that your parents have over you. I don't think you ever can lose it. My parents are absolutely present in my life. I think about them every day. I miss them every day. I'm more under the thumb of them than I should be, I think. And by the way, I meant to ask you, um, are you related to Billy Cotton? Yeah. In what way? So this is so funny because not many people ask me that question. And I obviously know a bit about that side of my family because um, it's my dad's side of the family and obviously they wanted to pass down you know, all the, all the books and, and the information about his life and also his son Bill's life. Um, so Bill Cotton was my granddad's cousin and Billy Cotton was my granddad's uncle. Um, so I didn't get to meet Billy, but I did meet Bill once before he passed away. And I actually made a Radio 4 documentary about both uh, Billy and Bill. And that reconnected my family with his daughter, Jane, who is now a great friend of my parents. So, yeah, they, we, we didn't really have a connection with them as I was growing up. I got into to TV as a teenager, completely unrelated, because at that point, Bill had retired and, and Billy had passed away. So it's a sort of a complete coincidence, but in the lineage, nonetheless. Did they have Jewish blood? No, I don't think so. Yes, usually because um, if somebody has a a material that they're called, like gold, silver, diamond, <laughs> cotton or something of that nature, uh, it's often that they have Jewish blood. I never knew that about Billy Cotton because I remember growing up with the Billy Cotton band show. Where you yeah, can, of course. Can, you know, that's... Yeah. And... Yeah. Um, he he was much loved and admired in our household. Very, very impressive lineage are connected with you. So that's nice nice to know. Now, I wanted to ask another thing. Did you used to be fat? No, no. Although I've had severe problems with my physical body and eating over the years, I, I had lots of eating disorders growing up, but I I've never been big. No, I, uh, there's somebody that's like you that went... Oh, Fern Britton. Oh, Is it must Fern? be that Fern Britton, yes. Yeah, I I, I'm often... And I get mixed, all the ferns <laughs> get mixed up, I'm afraid. Do you know what, Miriam? I had a new postman the other day. And he walked up to my house and he said, oh, I, I was told it was Fern Britton that lived here. I'm absolutely gutted. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> you should have oh, kicked well. him in the gusset. <laughs> <laughs> no, I should have. Um... Miriam, I, I just want to check with the Jewish heritage on the cotton side, but I, I know there's Jewish lineage on my dad's grandmother's side. They were the Gottheimers of Polish Jewish descent. But it's, again, something I, I want to look more into. And I know that's been a great passion of yours over the years, genealogy and looking into your family tree and also really understanding your Jewish heritage and what that means for you. I know that's of great importance. You're quite right that it matters a lot to me. It's it's my major hobby, and it has been for about 40 years. So I've got a huge family tree, and I've met all these different cousins all over the world. And it, it does fill in my life a lot because you are the sum of all the people that have gone before you. And it's fascinating to find out 
who they were and what they did with their lives. And one of the things, obviously, I, I talk about in, in, in my book, which is called This Much is True, by the way, um, my, my great-grandfather was a criminal. And I only found that out, you know, in, in the course of my genealogical studies. And mummy didn't know. Or if she did, she never said, never. Mm. Because it was a shameful thing. And he was sentenced to seven years hard labour in the, the jail on the Isle of Wight, which is called Parkhurst, still there. And that uh, hard labour is the treadmill, which is just the same as Oscar Wilde had when he was sentenced in, in uh, 20 years later. But my grandfather was sentenced in 1877. Great-grandfather, great-grandfather. I, and I don't know whether the family knew or just kept shtum about it. I just don't know. I, I love that notion of looking at who came before and how much of of their tenacity, how much of their blood is within you. And again, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I, I actually took part in Who Do You Think You Are a few years ago now, and I found out a lot about my dad's side of the family and my mum's, but my dad's more recently being my great grand, uh, my great yeah, my great-grandfather, who I didn't get to meet. But he was a conscientious objector and ended up incarcerated. And I've thought a lot about his tenacity and his determination in sticking to his beliefs. And and then I sit there and wonder how much of that I've been perhaps lucky enough to get. Or maybe sometimes I underestimate how much of that I might have. I find that fascinating. Well, we have all inherited whatever our, our ancestors gave us. I mean, I hope that I didn't inherit a criminal trait. <laughs> Although when people ask me, you know, what did I want to be if I, if I weren't an actress? And I always said a probation officer because I'm fascinated by criminals mm. and I find them frightening a bit, yes, but very interesting. Mm. And um, I don't feel loathing for criminals except drug pushers and the people who smuggle people, because that I find truly evil, uh, and I would chop them in a minute. I'm a real dobberinner. If I think someone's <laughs> done something wrong, I'll bloody well tell everybody. I will. And that's why I'm so public in the book about my feelings about John Cleese, for example, because he was horrid to me, and I haven't forgotten it. Yeah, this was when you were at Cambridge and you were part of the Footlights Review. So I was really interested in this because this was a time when being perhaps on stage, but certainly being in that comedy world was a, a real big boys club. You know, it was a male orientated gang and you weren't welcomed at all. And I, and I wonder how did that affect you knowing not only how much you loved being on the stage, but also knowing that you were bloody good at it? I don't think you ever know that you're good at it. You know what you what works sometimes. And I did and always have loved uh, showing off, I think, performing. I've, I'm a natural performer. It's it's something I enjoy having an audience. And if I haven't got one, I'll make one very quickly. I'll kind of shout and gather a crowd or something. <laughs> it's not a very praiseworthy attribute to have, but it is part of me. And I think it was an old boys club and a young boys club and that was something that uh, Dawn and Jennifer really blew away because of their unassailable brilliance. They were able to just push them out the window. And now it, it's still tough for female comics. 
but it, it's so much easier than it was. And it, it is part of the, the general privilege that, that people have. I mean, I went to university because my parents were determined that I would go to university. And mummy particularly saw what a, what a door opener it was for everyone who went to university to be able to go on and get jobs. I'm not sure that's true now. Did you go to university? No, Miriam, but I had a really strange childhood in ways that I started working really young, hosting kids' TV shows when I was 15. So I missed out on bits of my education, which I'm sort of deeply insecure about now. But I think I, you know, I had parents that were quite laid back when it it came to schooling. And, you know, nobody in my family had been to university ever. I think my brother might have been the first one. So I was allowed to really go off and experiment and see what this new world of showbiz was all about. And I've somehow managed to stick at it for the last 25 years. But I still have that sort of insecurity. I would have loved to have gone to university to to know that I really studied something by the book and came away with a degree. I'm well, sure do, that was a, do an open university course in English literature or history or something. Because it, it is available and, and we should know more. I, I can't help being very political, Fern, because that's the way I see the world at the moment. And I think that we've got the worst and most corrupt and incompetent government of my lifetime. And I think that's because we're not critical enough about our politicians. We're not intelligent enough to see when they're not putting forward the right arguments. We, we don't know how to pick holes in universe, in um, articles in newspapers. And I think we need to be more educated, just generally as a, as a, as a community, as a, as a nation. And I think it's terrific if you go and, you know, sign on for a course, even if you join a book club, if, if you've mm. got time and read a bit. Because oh, then I... you'll be able to get away with telling us such whoppers, such no, I know. lies. I know. That is, that's one thing that I've sort of gone off of my own accord. And, and I'm a complete bookworm and I probably read about two books a week and partly that might be driven by an insecurity but also I just I love reading but I completely agree with you I think I think it, it it's perhaps a bit of a combination people feeling scared to challenge anything whether it's political or not even outside of politics I think that this one really permeates into everyday life I think people are also now scared to challenge things they don't agree with because everybody's so scared of being first of all, maybe disliked, but also cancelled, this new awful sort of cancel culture. And I know that you're vehemently passionate about standing up for what you believe in, but also about speaking your truth, saying what you believe is right, no matter what the consequence. And do you think that's a life experience thing that you just get more resilient and you just care less? I don't think that. I think I've always been outspoken. And it's just a personality trait that I have. I tell it the way I see it, and I always have. It's not always a good thing to do that. I'm just going to cough just a minute. <clears throat> and I'm drinking from a milk jug, excuse me, because I forgot to bring some water up. Uh, <laughs> ugh, I hate milk. I, I think that we should be more outspoken. And, and people are so lily-livered. Nobody wants to be disliked. Well, of course... You don't want to be disliked. I don't want to be. But if it means not telling it like it is, well, tough shit, babe. I'm going to tell it the way I see it. And I always have been like that. 
And, um, you know, some people like me for it and think it's it's brave, which it isn't, because it's just part of me. I'm just like that. So I can't take any credit for it. And some people think I'm a, a bloody loudmouth, and they're right as well. That's, that's also true. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We've already um, touched on your Jewish heritage, and I know from reading your book that you've had an element of feeling like an outsider growing up because of that. And there's still, unfortunately, an archaic amount of discrimination towards Jewish people in the UK. And I wonder how how has that impacted you growing up and, and how you saw the world? My parents were very conscious of anti-Semitism and therefore I also inherited that. And I do think that there is a, an English attitude towards the other. They can be Jews or Catholics or disabled or fat, but there is a, a slight ungenerousness of spirit in the English. But I am aware of anti-Semitism and um, I hate it. Of course I do. And, and most people do. But I, I live in this funny kind of liberal guardian reading, you know, woolly, fairly comfortably off middle-class artists kind of thing. Uh, you can see, because look at the pictures on my walls behind me in, in my room. These I used to buy a, a, one of these pictures. They're political cartoons of the 19th century. And I, I bought one every time I got a voiceover. I bought one. Um, and I love them. They're all of fat ladies. That, that was the thing it. that interested me. And when you're fat, you see, you're conscious of being an outsider. And... I, I wish that I had been strong enough in my life to, to get thin and stay thin. And it never happened. And when I die, it'll probably be, God forbid, from a stroke or a, a heart attack or, you know, something to do with the fact that I've eaten too much all my life. But the English are not a very open-minded nation. And we've got narrower since Margaret Thatcher, I think. I think she's had an effect on it. So you can all, people listening to this, think about that and see if they agree with me. You, you, you touched on the, your relationship that you've had with your, with your body and you talk about this a lot in the book and over the years and through documentary making, you've met some lovely people of, of all shapes and sizes that have got absolute acceptance and, and a celebratory of, of however they look. But you don't feel you've ever quite reached that stage of, of acceptance. Is that right? That is right. I don't like my body. I like my face. I think my face is rather sweet. But I, I think my body is truly gross and ghastly. And I'm just having to deal with it, which I do. And also um, being gay, which I don't have any problems with at all, I'm delighted to say. That's never been an issue for me. But gay women are often fat. I don't know why that's true, but they often are. And um, 
it, I, it may be because they don't have to please men. And if you don't have to please a man, then you, you don't bother about it. But that's a bit of a generalization. Uh, anyway, you know, I'm all the things that make an outsider, a fat, a homosexual <laughs> Jew. I couldn't have much more against me. So I think it's remarkable that I've, I've done so well. And maybe that's also a tribute to England because it shows that it's not all as, as bad as I might make it out to be. Without a doubt. I mean, I think it's those those things, those attributes just listed are, are the reasons people adore you and that you're so freely vocal and happy to talk about life in all of its texture. It, it's the most wonderful thing. And I love the, the section in the book that's dedicated to your partner, Heather. You've been together for 53 years, not in the most inverted commas traditional sense, because you've never lived together. You've always met throughout the year in, in different places and, and the shared houses that you, you own together. And I wonder why so many of us are still so bound to this idea that we have to be under the same roof as someone, share the same bed with a partner. I mean, I very regularly retreat to the spare bedroom because I prefer sleeping alone. And whenever I've admitted that publicly, oh, I've had to deal with you know, ridiculous headlines in newspapers that my marriage is falling apart and, you know, things that my stepchildren who are, who are old enough to walk into a shop and buy a paper might see. And it's like, that's obviously just not the case. But I prefer to sleep in a bed on my own. But we, we're we still so old fashioned in a sense that we have to stick to this rigorous notion of, of what a partnership means. And it's that's quite draining. Yes. I, uh, who is your chap? So my husband is, uh, he's a musician, he's called Jesse Wood, and he's a very lovely human, very lovely. I'm so happy for you because it's it's important to have a, a loving partner, to have a shared life, I think, is, is sweet. Life is, as I say, life is sweeter shared. And Heather, my partner, who I think is going to find it very difficult when this book comes out, because... Oh, bugger that. I'm just going to I'm just going to tell them I'm in the middle of a podcast. I'm in the middle of a podcast. I can't talk to you. Sorry. I'll turn off the phone. There it is. Can't have that, can you? I'm sorry. I should have talked. Oh, we don't mind. We're very relaxed around here. I, why I had the phone with me was because I wanted to see what I looked like. So I put the camera on facing me so I could see what I looked like. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm sorry, I apologise for that. Anyway, Don't, it's um, fine. what were we talking about? Now I've forgotten what I was saying. We were talking about the fact, you know, you've had this incredibly long relationship. Oh, you've yes. sustained a partnership for 53 years. So whatever you're doing works. But it's not, and I hate using the words normal or usual, but it's not what's deemed as regular, not living with your long-term partner. But it bloody works. It works. We're both professional women. We're very different. Heather is extremely reserved, quiet. She doesn't like to be the focus of attention. She's a historian and a scholar and and very in her own work and her own world. But she's able to come out of it and enjoy the showbiz bits from time to time. But she doesn't like all the pizzazz and, you know, the red carpet stuff. That absolutely, she cringes at that. But we love each other, and I I have been 
sustained and comforted and reassured by my relationship with her. And it's extremely important. It's the central spine of my life. And it has been since I met her. I knew when I met her that she was the one. She she always she always said that she didn't think I could be uh, gay because I was so noisy <laughs> in those days, which was, it was in 1968 when we met. In those days, you know, lesbians were, were kind of shrinking violets, sidling round corners and <laughs> not not out front and unless they belonged to a, a gay club and then they were, then they were. But I, I, I've never been a shrinking violet. I've always been out there. And I was just so fascinated by sex. It was it was such an extraordinary thing that you could have such powerful feelings that started in your cunt and went went all through your body, you know, and you thought, God, what an amazing thing. And um and when I saw her, that was it, I knew. And she stayed with me that first night and we didn't get up for a week. We didn't wow. get up. We just stayed in bed. And um, I'm not going to use the word that I would normally use, but we made love. Our groins intertwingled. And it was wonderful. And we don't have sex like that now. And I think I, I don't really want it because, hell, I'm 80. I need to to be a little bit quieter in that department, and I am. But I am thrilled when people find love and joy in each other. And um, it has been a wonderful, oh, I'm so grateful that she's in my life. And the only thing I fear is that something will happen to one of us, because obviously at this age, she's two years younger than me, so she's 78 and this is, you know, I'm, and I'm 80, and this is, this is, we're getting on. And I know many people who've lost their partners through, in fact, some through COVID. And I'm aware of death. There is that tunnel facing me with no light at the end of it. And that makes me thoughtful and a little frightened, but very grateful for the partnership that we've had. And everybody should make their own. I don't, I agree with you. We, you, if you want to sleep on your own and come together for cuddles, that's perfect, isn't it? It is. And I think that's one of the most beautiful ways I've heard a relationship and sex described. It's wonderful. I was beaming with joy the whole time you were talking there. It's so lovely. Um, you say in the book, the only time you've delved into the world of therapy was when you thought you were going to lose Heather because you'd had an affair. And I wonder how that therapy helped and, and, and if you've ever taken it up since or wanted to revisit it. I was very lucky that I found the right therapist. And I think that's crucial, that the person who puts you together again is someone that you can trust and like. And uh, through another actor, I met uh, uh, Roly Curran, my friend Roly. He introduced me to Margaret Branch, who died quite a few years ago. But she was somehow the right fit for me as a therapist and she she was very funny little little scottish lady but with a very sort of posh voice like that and she said um yes come and see me she said i've got a lot of um, show business clients i call them talented toddlers and um she said i like to be paid in cash brownies please 
which in those days was was ten pound notes. So you had to pay her in cash. And she said, "You better come and see me, and I'll see if I like you. Because if I don't like you, I can't help you. I can't treat you if I don't like you. So let's meet and see if we get on." And I thought that seemed very sensible. So I trudged all the way to Hamilton Terrace in St John's Wood. She said, "There's a there's a therapist on every corner in the wood." <laughs> there probably was. But I was lucky, and the conversations we had. She was very searching, and she wouldn't. She wouldn't let me, as she used to say, be glib. Don't be glib. Don't be glib. Don't be glib, Miriam. And, and she often said things three times. How are you? How are you? How are you? Which focuses your mind terribly. And um, I, I was, I was very, very fond of Margaret. And she was able to put me back together, to see myself as I was. And also she enabled me to be a bit critical of my mother. And she said, you must be critical of your mother. You're grown up now. You don't have to lie down and put your legs in the air with your mother. She's gone now and you must see her as she was. And that was quite hard for me because mummy was, as you mentioned at the beginning, she was that towering figure in my life. And there was only the three of us, of mummy, daddy and me. And she was a really tough cookie. And her influence is still there. But I think Margaret enabled me to detach myself a little. And in in that detachment, I grew up a bit. Yeah, I think it's hard, isn't it, to see your parents objectively and just as humans, because we there's there's so much of your life spent, whether it's idolising them or looking up to them or listening to everything they're saying. And there there perhaps is a point where you just see them as a human and might more freely recognise their flaws or whatever it might be. And it's not easy, is it? And and so did you feel that that therapy helped you progress in some way or expand your your thought processes when it came to relationships what what was the sort of takeaway from that period it did help me fern yes it did it helped me in a sense to to be more honest about who i was and to realize that i was maybe fudging an issue or not being completely open with heather and it made me realize how how I could damage our relationship by not not being faithful that uh, that I was gambling with my happiness i I've never been uh, sexually attractive really i'm not a I'm not a pretty woman and I'm not a gorgeous woman and uh, you know I don't inflame people as I'm sure you have in your life because you're lovely and 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 you're not when I say conventionally lovely. I mean you're you are blonde and slender and have a life force in you, and that's hugely attractive. In fact, that's the only thing that's really attractive about me. I have got an energy in me which is there even now, even though I'm eighty. But I've always felt that I was not someone that people would fancy, and so if somebody did fancy me. I used to go, oh, yes, yes, please. And I don't do that anymore. Well, of course, maybe, I mean, they're not going to now. But in the days when they did, I was too up for it. I was anybody's. And that's not true. That mustn't be. And I learned that from the therapy. Let's talk about something at the end of the book really struck me. And it's that your whole life, you, you say you've sort of resisted 
spirituality and looking within. But now that you've got to the age of 80, you feel perhaps more ready to do so. How's that going? (laughs) Not terribly well, I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think it's... It's silly to think that there is that we know everything because we don't. Do I believe in God? And my parents certainly believed in God. No, I don't. I don't believe in God. And I think there are terrible things done in the name of religion. Wars are fought. People are killed. Lives are um, diminished by religion and the prejudice that comes from it. Particularly, I saw that when I visited America. And I would say that the, the, the biggest division in America is between the people who go to church and the people who don't. They are different kinds of people and they don't meet. But I think there must be something that I don't know because I don't know everything. Nobody can or does. So I have to go to my grave quizzically. I don't know what's going to happen. I hope, Margaret Branch used to say, it might be a party. I think it's going to be a party. Well, that was Margaret. That was her wonderful take on things. I don't know that it's going to be a party. Is it going to be a party I want to go to? I don't know. So I leave it at, I don't know. But I am less sure that there is nothing. There is something. What it is, I don't know. Has it been manifested to me? Never. I know wonderful religious people, really great rabbis and and priests. And I I mean, I play the mother superior in Call the Midwife. So I've, I've had to study a bit of what those people are like. Yes, there are good people. But is religion, has religion done a good job for the world? No. Yeah, I think it's um, sometimes it's collectively a problem, isn't it? It's collectively a problem and and perhaps more so, you know, I I don't align to any particular religion, but I I definitely tentatively class myself as spiritual because I do believe in something else other than just this human experience, a greater force or power or, or just the sort of mysticism of it I like. And I think without that, I'd feel quite bleak. I like thinking there's there's some sort of magic out there that I can't quite put my finger on. I, I find that really soothing and comforting. As I said earlier, a, a lot of this book is a real love letter to your friends. You know, you mentioned you've got so many friends and you mentioned nearly all of them and, and how wonderful they've been and the brilliant times that you've had together. And towards the end of the book, one of your sort of conclusions is that one of the most important things in life is kindness. And clearly that's something that you've showcased to to all of your friends. But I wonder over the years how kind you've been to yourself. To myself? Well, probably too kind. I probably (laughs) haven't been self-critical enough. And that's something I'm, I'm learning. But I do believe that kindness is important. I think you should take you should take life seriously. It's a serious business life. And when I see young girls lying drunk in the street with vomit plastered over their faces and their legs in the air, I think that that is a misuse of their youth. That troubles me. I don't I don't want to see that. So I'm I'm a bit of a killjoy, you could say, in some ways. 
I want people to love life and love lust and sex, but I want them to take life seriously as well. I think you, yeah, if I was a bit more like you and you were a bit more like me, we'd meet in the middle somewhere because I am unbelievably unkind to myself. Like I'm the opposite of you. I'm really hard on myself, way too self-critical to the point where I sort of rarely celebrate anything or rarely acknowledge anything that I've done because I feel, I guess, unsafe in being there's a sort of yeah, a lack of safety being kind to myself like then somebody else might take you know rip the rug from underneath me etc so yeah i i need to be a bit more miriam well you sh- you should because we 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 only have one life that's the terrible truth i don't believe in reincarnation i don't believe that i'll come back uh, as princess margaret or or um <laughs> Or, or a baby elephant, you know. I, I don't believe that. I believe that I'm here and now and I must make it work and do the best I can. And so I think that one of the problems with Christianity is that they think they get a second chance and they think that there's life up there in heaven. Bollocks. Just <laughs> like that. Do it now, do it here and love yourself a little not too much, but a little. Because after all, Fern, you've done good things in your life. And when you were doing those programmes for kids, they were wholesome, decent, fun programmes, which kids who watched it will have taken something from and, and been been uplifted and and have their eyes open. And that's good. That's And that's one of the ways in which people like us who are in the... In, I suppose I call it show business, but performers of one kind or another. We're very lucky because we can influence people's moods for the better. And if you can cheer someone up, I think that's already you're a little angel. Mm, I like doing it. I, you know, I even with this podcast, I like that it gives people a element of escapism, or they might learn something from someone else's life. I feel it's a real privilege that. I've moved into this area and and this is what I get to do all the time now. It's um it's a beautiful thing and you know today's a perfect example. I've absolutely loved talking to you. It was a a thrill to read your book. I'm I feel very lucky that I got an early copy of it and it's been a blast talking to you today. So thank you so much Miriam. Well, goodness me, I've had a lovely time. Thank you very much. Oh, Miriam, my goodness. Uh, Just so much to say. I mean, the phone going off, drinking from a jug of milk, (laughs) the fruity language. (laughs) I would not forget that conversation in a very long while. What a brilliant lesson in being curious about the world, about being brave enough to speak your truth. I'm still working that one out myself and giving it a go, but I'm nowhere near as brave as Miriam. Miriam, thank you so much for your time. And I promise I'll do my best to be a little bit more, a little bit more Miriam, minus the milk drinking out of a jug. Uh, And also to be a bit kinder to myself. That one is much needed. Well, look, if you thought that chat was naughty, just wait till you read the book. It's called This Much Is True, as Miriam said earlier, and it is out right now. And I can't promise the same level of fruity language in next week's episode, but you'll absolutely want to be back here for it nonetheless. Just tap that little follow button on your podcast app and that will deliver every new episode straight to your device. For now, though, a massive thank you again to Miriam, to the producer of this podcast, Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, 
And to you lot, I love you. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you soon. 